1: Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
0: Welcome to episode 194 with my guest, Dr. Peace Amadi. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's its more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. Fill out a survey. See how other people filled out surveys. Share your deepest, darkest secrets that you're afraid to tell anybody, and uh, maybe we'll read it on the show. Maybe we'll put it on a billboard and mock you. Would that keep you from doing it? Probably. Um, You can also become a monthly donor by going to the website. You can read the forum. You can read uh, blogs by me, guest blogs by people, a whole lot of stuff. Let's see. What did I want to share with you? I think that's about it. I'm going to be going to uh, Toronto again in November. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but I'm going to be a part of the um, rendezvous with... Which dog is in here? That's Ivy. Uh, I'm going to be a part of the rendezvous with Madness uh, film festival again. I had a really good time. Up there, last time I was there, and I'm um, going to be interviewing Clint Malarchuk, uh, who I don't know if most of you guys, if uh, you weren't hockey fans, probably have no idea who he is. But he was that goalie in the can't remember if it was the '80s or '90s, but um, a skate caught him across his jugular vein, and he almost died. And then had a lot of uh, emotional and uh, mental struggles after that. So I'm really looking forward to uh, not only meeting him, but getting to talk. Uh, Talk to a hockey professional. Um, let's get to it. This is uh, an email that I got from a woman who uh, named Anna. And she writes, uh, I would like to hear a show from the point of view of the other person in an intimate relationship with someone struggling. A supportive other can mean the world to someone struggling with mental illness. However, I feel it's often scary, exhausting, lonely, confusing to be the person on the other side. It can also be utterly heartbreaking to see the person you love struggling. Ideas of how, to, uh, of how the supporter can get support. An example roadmap for those folks in a shared experience would really be beneficial. I married my college sweetheart. In college, he was extremely functional and fun. Success in school, friends, job, sports, music, etc. He was a very kind person. We lived together and rarely fought. After we graduated and he got married, things changed. He started spending recklessly. He increased and expanded substance abuse. He'd lay on the couch for days and not go to work. They were threatening to fire him. I'd get home from work and see he had punched holes in the walls. He had always been sweet and nonviolent. He was forgetting things. We started to argue. I feel guilty because at the time I thought he was being irresponsible and not uh, thoughtful of me. I was bewildered and did not realize it could have been something bigger. It got progressively worse over a long period of time until one day I came home from work and found several things in our home smashed. I asked him to talk about it. He said he was angry because I was a horrible wife. I asked what made me horrible and he told me I must not love him because I did not go to his college graduation party. I pulled out photos of us together at our co-graduation party uh, that I planned. He started to cry. He said something was horribly wrong and he would get help. In return, I had to promise to tell no one. I did not. He received a diagnosis of bipolar and mild schizophrenia. I understood from his doctor it's common to come out at this age if it is there. I was hoping I could learn how to support via his medical professionals and him. He'd come home and say, my doctor said, if you started doing everything for me and I could just golf all day, this problem would go away. So instead, I purchased several books on the subject and joined a support group. I know that groups can be wonderful. My first reaction was horror. Uh, from the group, I realized this struggle lasted a lifetime. I realized how horrible it is for partners. I realized the majority of the couples never made it, and the ones that did made it did so with almost a parent child relationship i had always wanted a family i struggled with the moral dilemma of having children i decided that i had made a vow to him in sickness and health just because i got the sickness just because i got the sickness and not the health i loved him and my vows were my word the big worry about children was not as much that they could inherit it as much as i knew how scary and confusing it was for me to live with him as an adult i could not imagine what that would be like for a child If they came home with a good grade, he could be angry. If they were naughty, he could react with happiness. If he promised he would be somewhere, he could not show up. That would be so confusing for a child. Life became what it was. It got better for a while, then much worse. I came home from work one day to him in the closed garage with the car running. There had not been talk of suicide, and for some reason I was naive enough to think it would not come to that. The first person I called was his sister. She had become a sister to me. I trusted her and knew she cared deeply about her brother. She was also a high school guidance counselor and a psychology background. I had never told anyone uh, of these struggles, so to her credit, this was all a shock to her. She said, no one in my family would ever have these problems, so you must be a liar. I was blindsided again. I called his doctor next. He said even though I was his wife, due to privacy, he could not discuss him with me. But he said in light of the situation he could tell me that he had not been to his doctor appointments in several weeks and believed he was not taking his meds. This would make sense because things were getting worse. But this also shocked me. I've been driving him to his appointments. Where had he been going? Had he been yelling uh, he had been yelling uh, telling me how much he wanted things to change. Why was he avoiding help? I believe I also called the police, but they did not so much they did not do so much since he had left the premises. Until the suicide attempt, he regarded me as his wonderful wife, who he appreciated for sticking with him through this difficult and confusing time. He treated me like I was his angel. Because I had intervened in the suicide attempt, he saw me as messing everything up. I had also broken my word and told others. I went from being a wonderful angel to the devil. He also stated he would not take his medication. I disagreed. One day he took a handful of his meds with a bunch of rum. You want me to take it? Here. That morning, I was headed to do an errand. Someone had to keep things running. He pushed me down the stairs, beat me when I was knocked out, attempted to stab me with a screwdriver. I called the police, and we got a a divorce. After a lot of thought, I did not press charges for the assault slash attempted murder. I knew he was sick and was worried that the courts would hurt more than help. Jail would make things worse for him. He went to his family. He told me his family thought he would get better if he just got away from me. This hurt because my whole life over the last year or so had revolved around being supportive of him. I was exhausted. It also hurt because his family had become my family. As happens in a marriage, I would have stuck with him forever if he had not hurt me physically. I've been fortunate to have wonderful friends, family, and acquaintances. However, it shocked me how little the general public knows about mental illness. Even highly educated, non-sheltered, and engaged with life. I was not prepared for the constant barrage of questions from well-meaning people. I spoke with him for, f- for 15 minutes last week, and he was fine. He can't be mentally ill. They don't know there can be good days and bad days, good hours and bad hours. This mental image that mental illness is only with people with wild hair, homeless, or in a hospital. He was such a tender-hearted, nice guy. He would never hurt you. I would not have married him if he was not, and I was just as bewildered about the violence. There was a perception if you take medication, suddenly you're fine. You must have seen this when you were dating him. They did not understand it could come out at a certain point in life and could go through cycles. Several people telling me that love and prayer is enough to fix it. Some women friends who felt that either I had done something to deserve the domestic violence or it had never happened at all. I was floored. I was not prepared for all of these questions, and in many cases had no oh you know, in, in many cases had no uh, and. Many cases had no answers. Sorry, when I get typos, sometimes I'm not exactly sure what I'm reading. I had no idea friends this close to me would have those views on on domestic violence, and they had known me for for years, and I have always been an honest person. Several people thought it was okay to, to talk about him like a horrible person. This made me upset. This is someone I love. I blame the illness, but then not everyone with those issues beats their wife. I know there are people that love and support you. But don't know how some go away some show up and say the wrong things i was also so traumatized i had a hard time even talking about the incidents for at least six months my worry about you presenting this topic on your show is that many people with the illness feel they are burdened to their partners they are scared they will leave them i don't want to bring that fear up in others but many times it can be interesting to hear about things From the other side, I also know the that is exactly how I feel and I thought I was alone moments are great on the show and I might hit a chord uh, with how it feels to be a supporter. I felt there was very little support for the caregiver. It feels vulnerable to think what would happen if you ever needed anything in in return. The person who is there to support and protect you is not in the position to do so. Ideally, your partner is one of the people who loves you most in the world. Their world is highly impacted. In this world of all these horrible things happening to people, it should be full of kindness and taking good care of each other. How is the best way to care? What are some of the experiences in caring? I struggled with PTSD after the beating. I went to a counselor. I was terrified to do EMDR because I would need to re-experience. It did wonders. I worked hard to make sure this event would not affect future relationships of mine. It has. Over 10 years later, it's still something I struggle with. At the time, here are some of the struggles in, quote, the right thing to do. I wanted to help and treat him with respect. Uh, have you taken your medication today? Uh, when is it caring uh, to be micromanaging, and when is it treating an adult like a child? You want to treat your partner with respect, but they are sometimes not thinking clearly. Talking to others. Uh, when can I get you support, and when is it disrespectful to talk to the other person? When to get others involved and how? When is it the best thing to press them outside of their comfort zone? When is it the best to be kind and easy? What is the responsibility? And what do healthy boundaries look like for the sick person, for the caregiver? How to trust and what to expect from police and services? What to do if they don't react in the way you think they should? How to address it, honor it, and talk about it, but not let it encompass your whole life? The third person in the marriage, you, them, and the disease. How to work together to manage friends and family members' expectations. How to even set expectations when the other is all over the place, depending on the day. When do you leave and when do you stick in there? How bad does it have to get? What is the right thing to do when they're not helping themselves? What is the disease and what is just a part of normal struggles in marriage? And how to reassure the other person when you need reassurance yourself. Anna, thank you so much for that uh, that powerful email and uh, I thought that I had kind of wrapped my head around what it what it must be like being the loved one of, uh, of somebody that struggles with mental illness and until I read that email um, I don't think I really grasped the breadth of what it must be like um, for somebody with with that you know at least if somebody has cancer or broken leg or something else you know, the, the argument is almost kind of over that they have that. Um, but with mental illness, you know, and addiction, it's, uh, they're diseases that, uh, that tell you don't have a disease. Well, um, sorry if that was a downer to, to open the show with. Um, but, um, uh, I think that's a really important uh, topic to talk about. And if you're going to be in the, in the Southern California area and you feel like you have a story that you want to tell uh, as the loved one of, of somebody uh, with mental illness, either somebody you're currently in a situation with um, or from the past, um, shoot me an email at mentalpod at, uh, at gmail.com and uh, I'll email you back and tell you to fuck off. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism.
1: And that's when I got into therapy.
0: Let's talk about that. I was like,
1: fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything.
0: You are a shining example of what is best about human beings.
1: I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good.
0: I'm here with uh, Dr. Peace Amadi, who is... uh, uh, she has her doctorate in clinical psychology, it's not a not a practicing uh, therapist, but clearly um, uh, a lot of uh, your mental health professional, uh-huh. and a lot of uh, um, done a lot of work in various subjects. And one of the ones is you work for a nonprofit that mm-hmm. deals with victims of sexual abuse and human sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't imagine how talk about it. Let, then let me put put words in your mouth. What's the name of the uh, the nonprofit?
1: Yeah, so it's it's called the Ruby Project and it's a project that I started with a friend of mine about 3 years ago. Um, we had um...
0: Excuse me. I'm just learning how to drink tea.
1: <laughs> Are you
0: okay? <clears throat> Go ahead. You good? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, it's a project I started with a friend of mine about three years ago. And we had started it because of um, just some similar passions with young girls who've experienced trauma in general and what that does to their self-esteem and their ability to establish and maintain healthy relationships or even um, consider themselves able to be successes in life. Um, So being really passionate about that, we got on the phone and just started talking through what eventually uh, came to be known as the Ruby Project. Is there a website for it? There is. is It's www.ruby-project.org. And so, yes, you can learn a lot more about us by going there. And there's a couple of videos with some highlights of our retreats, which is actually our main source of programming. Uh, Currently, once a year, we put on these um, comprehensive, if you will, <clears throat> retreats where we provide the girls mental health workshops, um women's health workshops. So we talk about, you know, uh sexual health and just like physical education, really, really important for these girls. Um, and something really cool and distinctive about the Ruby Project, which is dance and drama therapy work- workshops, firmly believing that sometimes you can't really put things to words and you kind of have to either dance it out or draw it out or sing it out and just believing in the power of the arts, um, A, and then B, um, that's really important. Uh, the arts is really important because it's a sort of healthy way to, to cope and to mm-hmm. just sort of express all the turmoil that may be going on because of what you've been through. So wanting to teach adaptive mechanisms of coping, um, it's a big part of how the arts come in.
0: And that makes total sense to me because I, I believe, and I know I'm certainly not alone in thinking this, is that so much stuff gets trapped within our body, mm-hmm. and, and often our body tells us things that our consciousness won't allow us mm-hmm. to think or process, yep. um, and so that makes sense to me, that yeah. the, the nonverbal... Expression would be I can't imagine how deep the rage must be mm-hmm. that has been buried in uh, some of these women who had no choice yeah. about their situation mm-hmm. and had to use whatever sick coping skill to blame themselves mm-hmm. or to say this is what, you know, uh, this is just how the world is mm-hmm. or whatever. <clears throat> mm-hmm. What is it about that particular topic that. Um, that that made a light bulb go off in your head um were you encountering a lot of people where you were like there's a there's a a need for this that that isn't being met Mm -hmm. um and was it was it something from doing your your work as a clinical psychologist Mm -hmm. where you saw that gap
1: yeah um well, there's there's tons of um, there's tons of therapists and tons of programs generally that do focus on sexual trauma and trauma in general. But one place I definitely did see a gap was in uh, using the arts, uh, using music, using dance, um, just that freedom, you know, that creativity that can be so useful and empowering and healing when it comes to this population, so that's that's one gap I saw and in addition to that um being being uh, um african American an African American woman myself, seeing that it wasn't really being talked about in in my community in in the black community and feeling like I had a place or I would have more say or have more voice or have more effect, being an African American woman talking about and wanting to do something about it and being more effective in pulling uh, young black girls because they saw a a black woman talking about it. Um, Why do you, why do you think um,
0: it's not talked about enough? I know in general, Mm -hmm. globally, it's not talked about enough, but why do you, why do you think there's even more of a lack of it in the black community? In the black
1: community. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, There's, there's just always been a lot of stigma around mental health, like you said, in general. Um, but one value of, of the black community, um, is, is, is privacy and is keeping the dirty laundry, you know, within the home. And, and that's a respectable value. I mean, we all have a right <coughs> to being able to keep things to ourselves, keep things private, but they're a problem. Uh, rises when stuff is going on that needs to be talked about, like sexual trauma, and isn't because of, you know, fear of um, being shamed or embarrassed or, you know, looking some kind of way. Um, like you said, I, we see the stigma general, but I've seen a, a heightened sense of of fear and stigma when it comes to the black mm-hmm. community. And you see that even, I mean, even research shows just the underutilization of mental health services um, across the board or with with the black community in general. Um, you know, the, the issues, they're, they're kind of, I like to say that mental health is- issues are equal opportunists. I mean, they affect men, women, black, Asian, white, pink, purple, but black people, uh, they're the least likely, to use mental health services so just all around the board that that stigma is really impacting us being able to talk about it do something about it um help and all of that
0: so what was it that led you to believe that the the arts could be so cathartic had you had um a mentor? Did you read something about it? What? How did you make the connection? <clears throat> yeah, a couple ways. One... <clears throat> I'm so sorry about my... <clears throat> my phlegm is the third guest.
1: <laughs> uh, Welcome, The third phlegm. person in
0: the room. <clears throat> Go ahead.
1: No problem. Mm. Um, you asked, what would let me to believe that the arts would be such an important yeah. method of healing? Was okay. something
0: you discovered in your research, or, or was this an intuitive thing where you were like, I think this can help free people up?
1: All of, all of the above. Um, definitely my own personal experience. I mean, I've been fortune, fortunate not to be a victim of sexual trauma myself, but even going through my own traumas and childhood experiences, honestly, the most powerful thing for me was being able to sing, was being able to dance, was being able to get into another character and really get in touch with, you know, deep, dark emotions. And sometimes that was even more helpful to kind of being that acting role because I could distance my myself if if I was if I was afraid of of admitting to myself how dark and deep things were being able to step into character and go there it was just easier in some way kind of like a just dis, a disassociation
0: uh you know I noticed when I was doing stand up comedy mm-hmm. um how hostile and confrontational uh my early stand up was mm. and I was the least confrontational person in my mm. life off stage mm. and i saw person after person describe how the stage is where they can be who they want to be so that makes yep. that makes perfect sense to yep. me and the yep. goal i think is a as an artist and uh as an artist is to not ignore that human being part of yourself to say this i can't work everything out on stage mm-hmm. i've got to I've got to make sure that I'm starting to have some of this offstage so that my life doesn't remain small.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: So where would be a good place to start in talking about this topic and what you've learned? And give me some snapshots of.
1: uh, Of it. (laughs) Of of, of it. Yeah. Um, Well, just. I'll give some background to our girls and just what we've kind of seen um, as a result of the work that we're doing. I mean, one girl Amelia comes to mind. I'll just call her T, um, one of the youngest girls to have ever been a part of the Ruby Project. And she, um, part of her story was actually being um, sold by her own mother to men for sex, so that she can get money for her drug habit, and so and this is a girl who this was her story before she was even twelve in America in LA. <laughs> so you know we come across these mm. stories, and she came and um, was part of our part of our retreats. And um, how old
0: was she when she came to you?
1: She was uh, almost thirteen. oh my god yeah she was almost 13 so this is still very 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 young but this had been happening before she had hit 12 so for a couple years i believe it was happening how old was she when it started i don't know how old exactly i believe this had been going on for a couple years so maybe 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. that's Mm hmm yeah by your own mom yay mom of the year (laughs) so and
0: that to me speaks to the power of drug addiction
1: yeah, you know, so much more
0: than what a shitty mom.
1: Right, um, right.
0: That the sickness of drug addiction right. is—it truly is. It becomes your god. Yep. And people say, "How could you? How could you do that?" Well, if you've never battled with an addiction, you—you you don't know what it's look, what it feels like to be in the jaws mm-hmm. of the beast
1: yeah that's absolutely it's not to make excuses for no it's understandable yeah Yeah. i always say that it doesn't excuse it but it makes it understandable i mean how powerful drug addiction is and so that was a perfect example of you know mom choosing drugs over her own child and she wasn't in her right mind and i'm sure stuff had
0: happened to her mom to the mom that she had never confronted and never had never given weight to
1: yeah Yeah. oh you're good (laughs) 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 you're you're, no spot on spot absolutely the stuff is intergenerational um you know the cycles are just repeated until help is received at some point Uh,
0: let me ask you this question because Mm -hmm. i've often wondered it and i maybe it's the pc in me that Mm -hmm. is afraid of voicing it because i'm afraid that it may sound offensive Mm -hmm. on a on a certain level but i often think of how the ripples of something somebody did generations ago mm. is still being felt today and i can't help but wonder what slavery did mm. for mm. Th- when you think about all the rape that mm-hmm. happened all the the physical punishment mm-hmm. and i can't help but wonder are those ripples still being mm-hmm. felt today does mm-hmm. does that thought ever occur to you or am i just uh, kind of
1: No, I I, saying a
0: crazy thought.
1: No, I definitely think you're onto something. Um, I definitely do feel like, yes, there are still ripple effects of slavery. And like you were saying, it doesn't excuse behaviors that we may see, you know, within the black community, but it may make some things more understandable, you know, that as a community, we're still trying to come up from that to really be mentally liberated from that. For me, it's it's now it's now a mental liberation. It's now an ability to see yourself as as whole and and capable and free and and a free agent um and empowered, you know, um it's those kinds of things that I am, you know, an advocate for my my community, being you know a black woman, um, from my community, wanting to. To still achieve a mental liberation that I think started from being in shackles, literally, you know, 500 years ago. So I think you're onto something. I mean, it's not my area of research, and um, but it's definitely in um, it's definitely a, a a debate that's been going on, even on a just like a popular culture level. I mean, your blogs, music, um, interviews. You just hear like, is this still, you know, the effects of slavery? And some people will get real hot and say, oh no way, get old. Over and some people will say well um you know there's there's some truth there and, and i'm definitely on team there's some truth there um doesn't excuse no. poor behaviors but
0: and mm-hmm. because the, the the more i see it and hear stories and read surveys is it abuse trickling down to the next generation it, it it's like gravity it mm-hmm. it it's not a conscious thing. It takes extreme consciousness and desire to stop the trickling down because mm-hmm. I think we get wired to mm-hmm. to pass that down if not in the form that it happened to us in some other some other form mm-hmm. of, of of abuse. You know, I mm-hmm. think a lot of times a parent will say, "Well, I'm not going to beat my kid because that was done to me." But then they emotionally mm-hmm do something mm-hmm. to their kid mm-hmm. and they can't see that it's right. still it's, they're playing whack-a-mole.
1: Right, right. Yeah, because you're not always super consci- conscious of how you've been impacted. You know, we, we are impacted by everything we we encounter whether we realize it or not and that could be stuff that's right in our own family that could be you know socialization processes what we're seeing in culture and society especially by people that look like us that could be history i mean we are we're we're always being impacted by something we're always being moved one way or another by something whether we realize it or not and so the more insightful we can become about why we are the way we are, what's impacting our decisions or what we might have a tendency to do because of our families or our culture or our society or our history, you know, the the better we can be, the, the, the more free we can be, the more liberated we can be. But it, it always starts with insight. Hey, my mom had a problem with this. I need to be careful. I'm going to be prone to go down that route because mm-hmm. I'm being impacted by that, whether I realize it or not.
0: And I think the biggest thing, and maybe this is kind of a duh, Uh, observation. But um, the fact that more people are coming forward about whatever it is they struggle with, uh, it makes it less scary for others. And I see that as directly resulting in people stopping the the cycle of abuse, Mm -hmm. because I think stigma is the biggest hurdle uh, to overcome. But let's get let's get into uh, the subject where uh, you're talking about tea. Yeah,
1: uh huh. Yeah, T. And so uh, her story, as horrendous as it is, isn't that uncommon, actually. Um, I mean, her age, she's, she's exceptionally young to have gone through that, but it's not, it's not the first time I've heard a story like that. I mean, even as a clinician in my training, um, um i had you know many clients who had stories similar very similar to that just at a very young age were were the,
0: were the parents always addicts
1: um parents weren't Always addicts, no, but if it was a parent that was perpetrating some sort of abuse, there was an increased likelihood of them being under the control of some substance. So I wouldn't necessarily say that substance abuse is the cause of them acting out these ways, but there's definitely sort of a relationship. There. You know, it diminishes your ability right. to make great decisions. Yeah,
0: and I would, I would say a parent, you know, even if they weren't a substance abuser, uh, there's probably some type of sex addiction or some type of addiction Issue. going in. You know. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To, to
1: yeah, that. obviously, healthy people don't do that to their kids, and 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 I keep and I'm you know focusing on parents and families because um, more often than not, those who are sexually hurting their kids are family members, whether it's parents or um, uncles or grandparents, or it's it's not someone that's unknown to the victim, which is it's just kind of mind blowing if you think about it. It's someone you know. Um, so T's story not not uncommon. I mean, she is a little on the younger side for being you know actually trafficked but for being sexually abused I mean that you know happens as early as you know as an infant toddler you know and any anywhere it could happen at any at any point in someone's life um, and the effects are just um, um, like they're they're just they're awful the effects of being sexually abused, um, being abused in general, whether we're talking about physically or emotionally, but being sexually abused has just a very um, unique flavor to it. I mean, it's um, it. If there's anything that can really it, it take away someone's just sense of self and um, that can destroy someone's, yeah, sense of being and world um, and sense of safety, it's it's definitely sexual abuse. And
0: being uh, being objectified, which is what sexual abuse mm-hmm. is, um, sends such a terrible message uh, to somebody because you're not human.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: There's not something wrong with you. You are wrong.
1: Yeah. Yes. You yourself are wrong. Yeah. And, um, the shame that comes with with that and I, and I like to distinguish between shame and guilt which are often put together but guilt y- you know I like to talk about guilt more as I did something wrong but shame being I am wrong yeah. altogether. Have you
0: read uh, Healing the Shame that Binds by John Bradshaw
1: I have cuz he says that exact Does same he? thing uh, and I mention
0: that book all the time but it's okay. a, it's a book that that blew my mind when I when I first started reading it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I need to read that. But yeah, I'm 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 in that school of thought. Shame is I am wrong, and there's not. If you think about it, there's very little to live for, a very little point in living if you feel like you are just wrong because there's
0: nothing to be fixed. It's it's yeah you know exactly you're you're a square peg in a Mm -hmm. round hole world
1: right right nothing nothing to live for nothing to hope for um so it it just it 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 just hurts my heart so much to you know have to, to know people very close to me and then people that i've worked with who have had to go through that and what that does to how they see themselves and um how you see yourself to me is 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 just so integral to to be able to live to live and it's the hard, <laughs> it's
0: the hardest first step to overcome because it's it's the premise that you start with so it's like you can't even get anywhere right. until you can convince that person that there's some worth that in them worth and that something. this is worth doing and mm-hmm. that they are worth advocating for yeah. because even to advocate for yourself right. feels
1: false. Right. It right. feels
0: like, oh, I'm being you know, whatever I'm being overly dramatic. Right. What happened to me wasn't as bad as blah blah blah. Right.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Now did
0: T would she play that bullshit game of other people had it worse? Because I I see that time and time again with sexual abuse victims, mm-hmm. even ones whose stories are horrifying, mm-hmm. where they were like, oh, it could have been worse, you know, this mm-hmm. other. Or was she able to grasp the gravity of what happened to her out of the gate?
1: I think it, because she was so young in general or is so young in general that she's still grasping what it, what it is that has happened to her. And what was really interesting about her is that she was um, – very, very spiritual. I mean, when we would meet, you know, she would be the first of our girls to say, let's pray, you know, and it's always, I mean, I'm a, I'm a woman of of faith myself. And so while I, while I love that, it was just, I had wondered if that, you know, having a relationship with God or, you know, being really quick to pray was something that um, sort of blocked her from, allowing herself to just feel you know to 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 be mad to be angry to to be hurt you know because it was a very quick let's pray and and there's nothing wrong with that because again I'm a woman of faith and prayer is one of my coping things but when you're so quick to go there you know um, and you don't kind of just allow yourself to feel and to be angry and to be hurt and to question, then I'm wondering how, how well you're you're healing. Thank
0: you for saying that. And, mm-hmm. and somebody has never made that point on the on the podcast, and I'm so glad you did because it's, you know, I always stress that, yes, it's important to forgive. It's important mm-hmm. to do all these other things, but there's an order to doing things and feeling your feelings mm-hmm. is the first. Oh, yes. It's got to be the first. Yeah. Talk about why that's important.
1: Oh man, Um, (laughs) it's just I'm such a strong proponent of self honesty. Just being real with how you're feeling, how how extreme it is, how extreme the anger is, how extreme the resent resentment is, or the bitterness is,
0: and the numbing that's holding it down that's not allowing you that, that allowed you to survive
1: yeah yeah you just can't you just can't heal without having that time to feel i mean i mean I sometimes liken it liken it to um getting getting cut getting getting deeply wounded and then just quickly putting a band aid over it you'll get infected you know you're just piling you're just you're covering up stuff that's getting worse on the inside you got to clean that wound out you got to let all that pus out all that goo out c- kill all that junk out before you cover it and let it heal properly i mean there's just no you can't bypass that step your your soul needs it your, so
0: so mm-hmm. how do you do that with uh you like Tea. What did you do?
1: Yeah, well, with all our girls, I mean, the, the mental health workshops that we um, that we do, in which I run, I mean, our leaders run different workshops, but I, I'm in charge of the mental health workshops, being the mental health experts, and um, I have them tell their story, you know, and sometimes, sometimes they say, oh, I don't want to do this, or I've done it before, but I, I don't know how.
0: How many people are they doing this in front of?
1: Well, we, we keep our, um, we keep our retreat small. So the, the retreat that comes to mind is last year. where we had 20 girls. And so I did a workshop with these 20 and I sat them all in a circle and said, um, we're gonna, I'm gonna have you guys draw out your story page to page. And, um, And the goal behind that is to have them as they're going through their story page to page, be able to verbalize the emotions that they experienced when dad was doing this or mom was doing this or uncle was doing that, doing this. And not only the emotions, but the thought, the thought patterns that came with the emotion. So, you know, I was. Really scared when dad was pulling down my pants and I felt like I felt helpless. I felt like I was worth nothing, you know, being able to connect those emotions with those thoughts because Those thoughts become then a problem, too, as you start to develop like how you think, because like you said, you know, if you're thinking you're worthless, which comes from that feeling of being objectified or hurt or whatever, then it's that thought that's going to be that you're going to be carrying throughout your life and operating out of and operating out of. I'm worthless. It's not going to get you anywhere. If, it's, if anything, it's just going to get you into more trouble. So, so with my girls, I just had them tell their story and really encourage and give them the space and the gentleness to really talk about what they've been through well uh draw out what they've been through cuz you know the So they're the not work. adding
0: words to it yet it's just uh, pictures We of, start of we start it.
1: with drawing and then they add and then they add the the words of the emotions and then the and then the thoughts so we kind of work up to just You know, the the artistic part of it, just like the freedom to Mm -hmm. to get it out and then putting the words to it and then sharing with their, you know, their sisters, um, the other girls, what some of the hardest parts of the story because even in one long trauma story, there's always there's often that one point that was just, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, that one point, that one image that you can't get out of your mind. And it's usually that's usually the moment that needs to be talked about, you know, the most that even goes back to, you know, Sigmund Freud and his belief about just tapping into that that one um, troublesome um, moment that you know, has now deeply rooted in your subconscious. The tat,
0: that tattoo uh-huh. on, the, on the soul. Yeah. I, I really believe that, that yeah. there are certain moments and, and it's not always necessarily the one that is the most graphic right. or the one that's the most sexual. It's, I think it's the one that's the most abandoning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, so mm. often I hear stories of a child going to the parent and saying, "You know, your you, mm. stepfather is doing the, this to me," mm. and um, and the mother will say, call them a liar. And mm. I often feel like that's even more damaging mm-hmm. than than the sexual abuse. Yeah. But it, it's not the, being
1: believed. Not being yeah. believed by yeah. the
0: person who is supposed to. Absolutely you know, right? Because yeah. you you probably don't necessarily look to the step parent to protect you the the way you do to the genetic um, parent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to that one, two punch is the, is the most brutal Um, without uh, being too sensational. Mm -hmm. Can you get, can you give us any of those tattooed moments, any snapshots from stuff that was, Mm -hmm. that was shared that, was the tattoo on that person's soul.
1: No, it's, it's so funny that you mentioned that because as I'm thinking about our girls, um, the, the stuff that you would expect them to be the most traumatized was, was often second to just not feeling cared for by who they expected to be cared for, not being advocated for, not being fought for, not being believed, um, not feeling safe. And I think it has to do with like the expectations, like you said, like, this is my mom. And once I give you that label, or once I understand what that's supposed to be, when you, you know, disappoint me, when you're not mom, when you don't protect me, when you don't believe me, that is, it's, it's crushing, you know? So I think, I think that, that abandonment piece, um, is, is huge. And is actually, as I'm thinking, a common thread, um, a common thread with what tends to be the most um, difficult part to to get through when it comes to these girls and their stories.
0: And and how often do the tears come flooding out when they're able to <laughs> articulate that that moment? Is it? Is it? Is there rage with it? Is it tears? Is it sadness? How does the group react in that moment? Does anybody go to to comfort her? What's the What's the process?
1: Yeah, it, it definitely varies. Um, um, tears is a, it's a given, and <laughs> for some um, of
0: them, is it the first time they've cried tears uh, um, about it?
1: I, it may not be the first time, but there's definitely some of our girls who don't cry often and I remember another girl comes to mind. Um, her reaction was like, why are we doing this? Like, she was so mad. And you can tell she didn't, she didn't want to go there. And she actually was the one girl who didn't cry when we were, when all the girls were telling their story. But a day later, when her and I were just having a one-on-one and she was talking about, again, the abandonment, never having a mom, that's when she broke down. She had been sexually abused. She'd been that. She'd been this. But when she was later, in a, you know, in just me and her talking about the abandonment, that's when the tears came. So it really does, it really does vary. But generally, the tears come, we had a couple of girls who was just too overwhelming. And they sort of, you know, ran out the room, just kind of crying and just, I guess, trying to escape in a way. And so we have we have enough volunteers where if you know, girls leave, which we sort of expect them to when it's overwhelming, they kind of follow them out and you know, just kind of watch them, watch them, and kind of coach them back into the room. But my personal style is just to let, just let them cry. You know, just to, just to hold them, be a safe container.
0: Physically hold them, or just kind of hold the spaces. Emotionally
1: say. and physically, just as needed. So definitely emotionally, you know, and holding, containing is is just letting them know that nothing. I I am not overwhelmed by what they're going through like they're safe in in my presence and they're safe in our leaders presence they're not going to push us away or kill us by how emotional things are getting there's no
0: time limit there's no no appropriate way Mm -hmm. or inappropriate way to cry right you know if you want to throw something against the the wall Mm -hmm. or the snot's going to run out of your Mm -hmm. nose and and we're going to be here for a half hour we got all the time whatever it
1: takes yeah and which is so needed because for many of them they haven't had that space to be able to go there and to let it out. Or even if they had had the space, they haven't had the assurance that they're not going to scare somebody off or, you know, hurt hurt somebody just because they have to feel. So we're very, very big on let letting them feel, letting them go there and literally like circling around them as mm-hmm. they experience what, what's going on for them.
0: I remember the first time I cried on somebody's shoulder in a support group. Mm-hmm. It was so profound. The The moment um it was one of those moments of of abandonment that i that the ta- i was able to identify one of the first tattoos mm. and i was holding my tears back throughout the whole meeting and then somebody came up to me and said how are you doing mm. and i said i'm i'm not well mm. and and she just hugged me and and i just filled her shoulder with snot for mm. for 15 minutes mm. and there was I think the most beautiful part of it to me was there was not a sense that I that there was a clock that was ticking. And mm-hmm. People were putting chairs away around, mm-hmm. around us, mm-hmm. and neither of us cared. Yeah. And it was that feeling that I had wanted as a kid my yeah. entire life. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most powerful things on my road to healing because I went, mm-hmm. oh, okay, what I'm feeling is not – in exaggeration.
1: Yeah. This, you're you're valid. I'm validated. You're validated. Yeah, you're validated and you're it's okay to 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 break down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: and the the key I, I stress to people who don't have a support network is find a support mm-hmm. network cuz it mm-hmm. makes all the difference in the world cuz almost as traumatizing as going to the parent who doesn't believe you is going to a friend who can't handle it.
1: Mhm. Mhm mhm yeah you 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 want a support group, but you do want to be you do want to pick and choose about who that support is because you know at the end of the day some people can't handle it, and some people will be insensitive, and some people will tell you to shut up and get over it and which is unfortunate, you know it shows where they're at, and not every- not everyone's a psychologist or a therapist or a mm-hmm. caring person in general, you know so um but that support is so so important
0: before we get back to the the, the circle and the moment mm-hmm. you know that the where things change mm-hmm. for them any tips on how to know if somebody is safe or not to open up to or can you test things by sharing a some a little something and see how that goes is that yeah. a good idea
1: that's such a good question and such a great idea absolutely be um You can test a person's ability, willingness to be there for for you by, um, but yeah, by starting with a little bit. Like if you can tell them a little bit about your story and it seems like they're encouraging you, um, to say more you know um then that that's kind of a sign that they can handle more um of course you want it to be someone you feel like you can trust so you either have that sense because you've known them long enough or because of the context you're in like a support group where you know everyone's there for the same reason and so that trust is sort of implicit that you'll have that with one another but um you want to make sure this is someone that is not going to go you can call somebody up you, you know what paul told me mm-hmm. you know um so Trust in that sense, um, trust to handle it because they feel they give you off a sense that they're comfortable and they're, they're not going anywhere um, on account of hearing whatever you, you know, whatever you're about to tell them. Um, those those would be sort of the, the two main things I would think of.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to the to the circle. So mm-hmm. they have the, this this these epiphanies. Yeah, where, where they finally get in touch with mm-hmm. what they're feeling.
1: They get in touch with what they're feeling, which is so important to healing. Um, we, you know, we rally around them. We, we circle around them. We, um, we often do, you, you know, you asked about getting physical. We get near them, rub on their backs, hugs, you know, whatever whatever feels needed or appropriate, whatever each of the girls need. Some need more, some need do less. Do some of them
0: recoil from touch? Um, or is it safe because it's all uh, the same sex there?
1: Um, Generally, generally, our girls respond well to touch and even initiate it, which actually can be another issue because (laughs) um, particularly when you've been sexually abused, you know, touch is your way of communication. And so Mm -hmm. it's not really a problem when you're with girls or older women that are trustworthy but it you know this is kind of a side note. it can be a problem when you're with when you're trying to establish a relationship or there's someone not trustworthy and still touches the way you expect to give and receive love and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. but that's besides the point but yes most of them respond well to touch and there's some who you can tell are a little bit comfortable with it maybe they haven't had that in their family and so us all being you know trained um Trained and um, oriented to how this population of girls genuinely responds and and responds to things and what their needs are are you know our, my leaders know sort of how to how to go with what each girl needs and to sort of let each girl have what she needs, however much or or little so um so we do that um we rally around them, we let them you know experience. Whatever it is they need to experience, I go through a process of sort of um challenging the things that they have learned to believe because of their experiences, so this is where that you know fighting the the'm worthless piece, which is a very common denominator by the way, feeling like you're worthless, you're not going to amount to anything that um all of that stuff um so. So then my the next part of my work is to is to challenge those beliefs is to help them see you know this is kind of um what we call cognitive be- a cognitive behavioral technique see evidence for evidence for and against whatever it is that they believe so if they're feeling like they're worthless you know what things that what things have they already experienced even if the only thing they can think about is their ruby experience what What goes against that belief that you're worthless? What points to the fact that that is just simply not true? Beginning to help them gather alternative ways of thinking about themselves based on other experiences that they've had, because even if they have been abused or abandoned, there's likely some other experiences that have been um contrary to those experiences that they can hold on to and say, oh, well, maybe I am worth at least a little something, because even though mom and dad weren't there for me, or uncle hurt me this way, friend A did this for me, so, oh, well, maybe I am a little bit worthless. And, you know, some... It's like a
0: court case in their head.
1: Yeah, I- Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. It's it's literally like weighing out the evidence and and like and like I was mentioning, some may not have had a lot of those experiences, but even being just at the retreat, which um we pl- uh, intend for it to be a, what, we, what mental health professionals will call a corrective experience, they can start right there. If, if that's the beginning of their corrective experience, if that's the beginning of the other side of the case, then so be it. We will continue to build on that for the rest of retreat and as we stay in contact with the girls.
0: And how could it not be? Because you, you have nothing to gain by going there. Right. To, to, so... Right. It's that's a good uh,
1: yeah.
0: argument from the, from the defense. Yeah. Uh, I always say that uh, um, either the voice that was planted in our head by an abusive parent or addiction, and often there there is an overlapping voice between the two of them, mm-hmm. is the most ruthless prosecuting attorney. Mm-hmm. It is awake before you are. It's standing over you. It's mm-hmm. when you wake up it's already had breakfast and it's Mm -hmm. got three reasons why you shouldn't get up you don't have enough you don't do enough and you aren't enough you've already blown the day you've blown your life and your future is fucked Mm -hmm. and and it's (laughs) pretty much (laughs) and it's so Mm -hmm. convincing and i think that's why service can be so important in support groups is because it at the end of the day if you're brain starts to tell you oh will you just waste another day you think no i reached out to that person that needed help Mm -hmm. and they thanked me Mm -hmm. or i set chairs up at a meeting Mm -hmm. um I'm. I'm not worthless. Mm-hmm. I do contribute. Yeah. I am a part right. of something larger than myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's. Mm-hmm. It's. The, those are. We need those arguments. Mm-hmm. We need those. Those counterpoints. Yeah. I, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's a big part of at least that the mental health piece is is getting them to be very real what they feel, um, connecting those feelings to the ways they've um, thought about themselves and still think about themselves, and then providing a counter evidence as to why that's just simply not true like they are worthy you know i mean that yeah that's our whole goal of of the ruby project to let them know that they are worth more than rubies which comes from a proverb so that that's the main goal you are worth something do you
0: personally ever find yourself fighting back tears do you if they come out do you let the tears flow
1: yeah yeah i do um Tears, <laughs> if there's one thing that will happen at a Ruby project, at a Ruby retreat, is tears all the way around. It's like our dessert. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all to say that... um I, I mean, in general, I'm a sensitive person. I'm, I'm, I'm easily moved and easily impacted by other people's pain, and I've always been that way, which is what led me to the field of psychology in the first place. But I do let myself cry, and I do let my girls see me cry because I want them. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm purposefully showing to them that they, they are impacting me that that I'm hurt, that they hurt. Now in those tears, I stay there. I stay standing. I stay strong. I keep command of what's going on what's going on around me, which is the piece um that I was mentioning before about showing that I can handle this and, you know, I'm here to contain this. But um but I will let myself cry. So it's it's kind of like that fine balance between showing you can contain this, that I'm I am a safe, strong um, refuge for you, yet still I am deeply wounded by what it is you're experiencing. Um, I let them see me cry. And I, I encourage my leaders to to, to, to let themselves feel with the girls because I, I, that's a real human experience.
0: Does that ever, ever turbocharge their tears? Because I would imagine.
1: Oh, yeah. That's,
0: that's <laughs> like... Yeah, that's like you know when I've shared stuff in a support group mm-hmm. where I'm I'm crying and I'm looking at my feet and I look up and I see my friends crying. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the most beautiful feelings about being alive because mm-hmm. the, 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 those aren't words that can be parsed and said. Well, they're just saying that because mm-hmm. no, when somebody's crying when you're sharing something with them, mm-hmm. there's no picking that apart.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, to answer your question, it it does turbocharge their tears, I think, in part, because it's their awful stories to hear. And I think in part because it may, um, they may resonate to some degree. I mean, I I think the leaders that I do have, I, I think they're all connected to the Ruby Project in some way or another. I mean, they may not have all been sexual abuse, but they they know pain. You know, they know pain in one way or another. And so I think it kind of taps into just the the realness of human experience. And it's it's hard. So the Ruby Project
0: isn't just about uh, victims of uh, sexual abuse or sex trafficking?
1: No, we're generally we reach out to girls who have had some sort of trauma in general. So, you know, the first things that come to mind and the girls that we most grab are girls who've been sexually abused, but some have just been physically abused or emotionally abused. Some just grew up in a household where both parents were addicts and that was traumatizing to them. Some have been the victims of severe bullying. Um, some were just abandoned. So it's for girls who have a trauma background in general, but most of our girls have experienced some sort of sexual victimization have
0: the ones who haven't been sexually abused struggle to feel that their story is as valid that their pain is as valid as somebody who was sexually abused
1: I don't think so because we don't I mean we're careful not to um, um, to make one trauma more important than the other. but I mean
0: in their mind
1: in their minds I I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't, I haven't really heard that sentiment. I mean, I haven't, yeah, I haven't really heard that sentiment. I I imagine that some maybe may walk away thinking, well, I thought I was doing bad, but Mm. oh girl, (laughs) you know, like they may think that, I mean, I've even, I've even felt that, like I said, I've been fortunate not to be a victim of, of sexual abuse. You know, I have my own issues, but I've even felt like, wow, even as much as I've been through, I, yeah, I can't even compare to, you know, so and so and and I think that's, you know, that's right and wrong, because I, I do think there's something especially painful about going through, you know, being sexually violated, but most humans know pain and, you know, and pain is pain. And so I, I, I. If I had the opportunity to, um, or even when I even even when I do sort of like implicitly let the girls know that whatever their story is, how crazy or not crazy it seems, um, there it, it all matters to us.
0: What was the abuse that you suffered, uh, if you're comfortable talking about it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's more of the emotional abuse nature, but it was it was bullying. Um, I was very badly bullied when I was in elementary school and junior high. And, um, you know, though no one took advantage of me sexually, I definitely, what I had learned from that experience was, was a sense of worthlessness, you know, was a sense of smallness and insignificance. And, um, just, just that I, um, just uh, that i was just an easy an easy target you know that i just didn't have <laughs> much that anyone cared to really value and so that was it it, it was a huge shot to my to my self esteem and you know even even till today you know people will see me as this I, I, The compliment I get the most, I promise you, is "You are such a confident woman. You don't care about what anybody says. You do you. You know, you're you're just you know miss that miss everything woman." And I'm like, wow. If you only knew (laughs) how much putting on that confidence hat still takes because of all of all of what I went through, you know, and people um, knocking at that um, like knocking down that confidence day after day for several years of my childhood, which is the most formative time of our, of our lives, you know? So,
0: so the courtroom's still in session
1: it and, they, is. and they think it's not, it is. And so a part of me is like, yay, well, I guess I'm, <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm, you know, winning or I'm, I, I'm uh, successfully showing you what I want you to see, but trust me, I still have my self-esteem battles and there's definitely days where I'm, I'm just like, you know what am I looking at, like in the mirror? <laughs> <Yeah>. and, and, <laughs> you know.
0: And just to beat this courtroom metaphor into mm-hmm. the ground, mm-hmm. I I, I want to stress that the jury is inside you, mm-hmm. and it's not external. Mm-hmm. And if you keep treating the jury, waiting for the decision to come from the outside, there, there there's going to be a, a lack of momentum that I think is necessary mm-hmm. to truly truly heal and feel yeah. that authentic person. Mm-hmm that has been inside you since birth, but maybe retreated when Mm -hmm. the, when the abuse um, started. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for sharing that. And Mm -hmm. and maybe we'll get into more on that when we do uh, a mini episode about, Mm -hmm. uh, about bullying. Mm -hmm. Um, There was something else that I wanted to ask you about, about this um, experience and how they're, how they're healing. Just, just talk, talk more about okay uh,
1: so um, so the mental health workshops and letting them get um, g- letting them experience um, and uh, be free to experience or re-experience those feelings challenging those thoughts um, and providing a corrective experience as as leaders is is all you know a, a part of the mental health piece and then, like I said, what makes us distinctive is the is the arts piece so they're they 're kind of weaving in and out of these workshops the mental health stuff learning about their bodies and stds and um sex and all of that stuff and then um you know they throughout the day are going to these dance and drama workshops where they 're putting their feelings to art, and they are sort of. Um, chasing healing through art, and it's that's also a very very emotional time. And um, our arts director, which also happens to be my sister Dee Dee, um, she we don't she we don't the other leaders aren't in the room when. Dee and her um, her team are working with the girls. And that's in part because at the end of our retreat, we have what's called our art showcase where we invite the community to come and see um, like a, essentially a show, but for the girls, it's them telling their their stories of pain and of of triumph through the through the arts, and it's a transformative time for them as well as for the audience. Um, and we we love the showcase idea because this is this is sort of like a um a twelve step idea of like you can't keep it until you give it away, and so for our girls, you know they they've learned all this stuff, but you know, we abide by this principle that they don't really have it until they're able to show it, to give it to somebody else. So the showcase is what culminates the retreat, you know, and they share their stories and such. But um when they're in those workshops, it's the, the dance and drama workshops. It's it's just another <laughs> monster of it in itself of of emotions because they're tapping in, I think, to even you know like like deeper part of themselves stuff that i don't think words can can really reach um you know you mentioned earlier how our body kind of takes everything on and everything is in our bodies and um i've even worked with clients who would have severe stomach aches or headaches for months and months and months no medical cause that did not let up until they were able to really uh talk through their traumas just showing how you know our our body um is sort of like the first um contender when it comes to the trauma it's like the first thing hit and and it, it needs to be tapped into when we're talking about this process of healing um so so in the in the, the dance workshops they're they're telling their stories through the dance um through the drama um they they're listening to these songs that are moving them on a very um, you know, just like a physiological level, and they're 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 putting their stories to movements, and it's just it's it's really beautiful to see. It's really beautiful. I to bet. see
0: <laughs> I bet. I can't imagine. Yeah. Is, what gratifying work. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It is. it is. It's it's my life's work. I mean, I do a lot of things, but um, the Ruby, running the Ruby Project is definitely uh, probably the most fulfilling thing that I do.
0: Is there anything else you want to share on uh, that, that that subject?
1: Um, I, I know. I think we've covered a lot. Just you know, <laughs> um, you know, anyone that I would say is listening to this to just know how how real um, trauma is. How that that it happens. That girls and boys, very young, are being victims of this kind of stuff, and it affects everything about them and so you know a family member or a friend or a community member of someone who's gone through this should should be empathic and in, encouraging them to find the support that they need because like you said that you know that prosecution it doesn't you know it, it needs some intervention it needs, it needs some defense because it, yeah you don't just walk away from those experiences un, unscathed so yeah peace and money Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> many, many thanks to uh, to Pisamati, Doctor Pisamati, for uh, for that. That sounds like such a beautiful uh, project that uh, that she's got going. Um, before I uh, read an email and uh, stack o surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can go to uh, our website, mentalpod.com, and make either a one-time PayPal donation or a recurring monthly donation, which uh, either one is greatly appreciated. Um, but the monthly donations in particular uh, really help um, the podcast keep going. And it, it means a lot to me. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and you don't have to do anything once you put your information in there, unless you decide you want to cancel or your credit card expires. But it's really, really simple. And... Um, you can also support us by shopping uh, at Amazon uh, and entering through the search portal on our homepage, and not to be confused with the search box uh, for searching the site itself. If you're ever looking for an episode and it's a particular topic, um, go to the search box for our site. It's uh, it's on the right hand side, but it's. Closer to the top of the page and just type in a word like bipolar or, you know, whatever, whatever the issue is that you're looking for. Uh, Much, much easier than just scrolling through uh, episode after episode. Um, And you can support us non-financially by uh, writing something nice on iTunes, giving us a good rating, uh, or just spreading the word through social media. That that helps greatly. Uh, And I appreciate um, those of you that... uh, that have done those things in the past. It means a lot to me. And those of you that have transcribed episodes, that's a huge amount of work and, um, you've done it for free. And I really appreciate that. This is an email that I want to read and I'm going to withhold her name because, um, I can't find the email that I got back from her saying how she wants to be referred to. So I'm just going to withhold it. But, uh, She writes, I decided to write you an email because I feel that unless I share this, my head will explode. I started seeing a therapist once a week, but that just opened the floodgates, and now I feel like I need to talk all the time. I also joined a support group, mostly motivated by you, so that will hopefully help with the verbal diarrhea. I have major depression and anxiety, uh, seasonal affective disorder, and brutal PMS, Of all of those, the PMS is the absolute worst because it magnifies the depression and it makes managing my emotions virtually impossible. I take antidepressants, but they don't seem to help uh, with PMS. I get extremely sad. Negative memories flood my brain, which leads to rumination, and I also get rage. I would never hurt someone else, but I throw objects or hit my head on walls, etc. I swear it changes me into another person. It brings out the worst in me, and I hate every second of it. It ruins my romantic relationships because my partner usually gets the worst of it. We usually get into horrible fights, which usually end with him breaking up with me and me subsequently feeling so much despair and hopelessness that I want to end my life and let him know that. He is wondering if it is healthy for him to stay with me. We've been together for two years. Part of me understands him, but the other part of me hates him for abandoning me. Not to mention, should I be with someone who has one foot permanently out of the relationship, or at the very least, once every month? I'm deathly afraid no one will ever be able to love and stay with me. It's easy to fall in love with me, as I am pretty, or so I hear, funny and charming on good days. On bad days, I'm an entirely different person. I repeat my mother's and grandmother's patterns, complete uh, with emotional blackmail and mind games. I don't even realize I'm doing it at the time, and I have no control over it. Actually, with with help, you you can learn to to manage it, but I understand that right now, you, you feel that you have no control over it. Uh, It's a real thing, not an excuse to be a mean person. I feel extremely ashamed every time this happens. I hate this cycle. I hate the fact that I'm paying for my family's grave mistakes. I'm exhausted and lost and I hate myself for being this way. I'm also really angry and sometimes I feel a lot of bitterness which really scares me and I'm only 29. I just feel like I'm wasting my youth and my life on correcting someone else's major fuck ups. I'm spending hundreds of dollars every month on medication and therapy, and I could be putting this money towards a trip or even my damn pension. I didn't ask for this, and I did nothing to deserve this. I used to be a happy, smiley little girl, but somewhere in my childhood, I lost my natural joy for life. I guess I'm still in the self-pity phase, huh? Anyway, thank you for starting your podcast, and please don't sell out. And that email was brought to you by Eli Lilly. (laughs) Um... Thank you. Thank you for that email. And um as I do sometimes when I get an email that that feels uh like uh, I need help answering it, um I sent it forwarded it to a couple of uh trusted uh mental health professionals uh, who've been guests on the show. And uh Guy Winch uh, wrote me back and he said, she certainly sounds like she's trying to get help and changed. Based on what she wrote, the therapy that would be best for her would be DBT, Dialectic Behavioral Therapy. Uh, Yeah, behavioral therapy, which is about learning to recognize the triggers for strong emotions and to manage them without outbursts. I would suggest she find a therapist who specializes in DBT and maybe add it to the help she's currently getting. And, um, uh, I also wrote her. uh, Thank you for that, Guy. And uh, also listen to Guy's episode on rumination. Uh, That's a great uh, little mini episode. And I wrote her and I said, uh, I'm so sorry you're experiencing such overwhelming pain, confusion, and difficulty in your relationships. Yeah, mental illness fucking sucks. The good news is that we can manage it, but it's not simple, quick, or without setbacks. More good news is that as we begin to heal and manage it, our experience can help others, especially if we're in a support group or open and honest with others, with boundaries, of course. Uh, have you listened to the episode with Amelia? Uh, she talks about PMS mood swings and getting help for it. And my two thoughts are, if you're going to be in a relationship with someone, you uh, should both have realistic expectations about the hurdles you're, you're you'll face and both be willing to do what you can to manage it i think your partner would benefit from a support group for loved ones who have mental illness i know uh nami.org nami.org has some great choices uh, unfortunately uh the woman wrote that wrote me this email um emailed me back and said that she lives in canada and i guess uh, uh nami is not up there uh continuing Uh, I said, uh, consider taking a break from your relationship until you get a solid foundation underneath you, unless you and your partner are both committed to gaining the tools and insight to deal with such a complex issue. you got a lot on your plate, and so will they, but couples can survive and even thrive when one of them has a mental illness. There are lots of compassionate people in the world who will accept a partner warts and all, so don't feel like you have to stay with someone who can't accept that part of you, Because uh, you think no one else will, but don't give up your commitment to getting help. You definitely owe that to a partner. With so many aspects of mental illness that we can't control, it's one of the few we definitely do. I'm so glad. How there's no way I can get an episode through an episode without them without them chiming in. Uh, Ivy, I'm so somebody must have stepped on a leaf six miles away. I'm so glad you shared your thoughts and feelings with with me and um thank you for supporting the show. Are we done barking? I just got some uh, some new c- computer equipment. My uh, my other equipment kind of crapped out after uh 10 years. I got 10 years out of it, but uh the levels are different on this one and the buttons are different and uh I'm very I'm just feeling very anxious that the audio quality on this is going to be off. Um Anyway, you know me. i gotta, I got to let my anxiety out. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Shelley, who is straight in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, um, never been physically or emotionally abused. Um, and I would disagree that she grew up in a stable and safe environment. Uh, darkest thoughts. I've always wanted my parents' house to burn down not while they were inside, just to destroy all the photo albums. My mother was always so obsessed with getting pictures of everything. I hardly remember my childhood, just the pictures. Also, I don't love my mother. I have no reason for that. She's a decent person. She's probably never hurt another person in her life. I've just never felt attached to her. When I was a kid, I used to have fantasies about her leaving and never coming back or about having to go move in with other relatives. I knew that those other people might hurt me as my mother often informed me that other people beat children and such things. Um, yeah, that's the first fucking red flag is that your mother often informed you, you know, informing you that that happens. And that's a part of the world at a inappropriate age, you know, uh, is appropriate, but, uh, wow, uh. I think this one is going to be a a parade of red flags. Uh, But I just didn't uh, want the burden anymore of being the kid with a perfect mother and feeling like I I had to be perfect too and always having these uncontrollable emotions that led to crying fits that everyone uh, thought were because I was spoiled. I just wanted a new life. I wanted to not have to be embarrassed about who I was anymore. Uh, my mother told me I cried all the time because my parents never spanked me to toughen me up. So I wanted to go somewhere where people would toughen me up so I could finally be like a normal kid. By the way, I think your parents spanked you emotionally, you know, and I think it, I think they more than spanked you emotionally. Um, I have stints of daily self-harm, uh, the darkest secrets. I have stints of daily self-harm that last anywhere from weeks from days to weeks. People didn't really understand emotional sensitivity when I was growing up. There's a part of me that's always still trying to toughen me up. Um, Her sexual fantasies uh, often involve liberation, scenarios in which one partner is somehow empowering another through sex, which means the power dynamic usually begins with one person being less than the other, i.e. a servant, but then the servant always winds up being the one to take charge. I like to skip between imagining myself as both of them. Sometimes I wonder if I'd be into S&M stuff because of all that careful placement of power, but I have a lot of confusion about where the self-harming habits I use uh, meet my sexual cravings. Uh, Somehow it's all about wanting to feel in control of myself, but I don't know what kind of person that makes me. It doesn't matter what kind of quote-unquote person that makes you we we you're okay exactly as as you are um you know whether or not you have the healthy coping mechanisms to deal with those overwhelming emotions but you are not wrong you are not bad it just sounds like you were raised in a really invalidating environment where you weren't allowed to feel what fucking kid wouldn't go crazy you know, if they, if they they were constantly told that their emotions were wrong. It's one of the most abusive things that you can do to a kid, but it's covert. It's covert. So a lot of people never, never see it for what it is or call it what it is. Um, what if anything do you wish for? Acceptance for all the things I am, not just all the things that those around, around me want to see. That's profound. That is profound. And it's, it's going to sound fucking corny. Start with accepting yourself. I know it's hard. Um, How do you feel after writing this stuff down? I feel like I answered the questions wrong. Since uh, my sense of shame doesn't seem to come from the same places as most people, I feel like I'm wasting some poor readers' time. Um, I think all the listeners just want to give you a hug and say, man, you missed out on feeling felt as a kid. And of course, you're feeling crazy. Of course. You're struggling to have a sense of self because you weren't seen. You weren't seen. But we see you and we hear you and we're sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by Elia. And she writes, This is not actually my awfulsome moment, but I'm sharing it anyway because of its perfection. It came from a friend of my boyfriend, so I've given them fake names and left out location names. And, of course, I'm paraphrasing the conversation. So, John comes into Bob's store one day, looking utterly shell-shocked. Bob asks what's wrong. John says, My dad just killed himself last night. He jumped in front of a train. Bob, Oh my God, man, that's horrible. Can I do anything for you? John mumbles, well, I'm pretty hungry. Can we go get something to eat? Uh, how about that Euro place down the road, Bob? Yeah, let's go. So they do so. As they walk in, John gets a very strange look on his face. The Euro restaurant, for reasons that are a mystery, was decorated floor to ceiling with train memorabilia. Bob knew this, but had but had gotten food there so many times, uh, and was so familiar with the place that there may as well have been a blank white wall in his mind. Bob, oh my God, John, I'm so sorry. We can go someplace else. John was quiet for a moment, his eyes taking in the decor, before calmly saying, no, this is perfect. (sighs) You know how much I love an awfulsome moment. You know how I much love... This is a shame and secret survey. And there's three in a row that I want to read because all three of these people um have a lot of shame about their sexuality. And uh I know I read these a lot on the on the podcast, but they they just touch me. They touch me because I relate. Um this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Shame on Me. He's straight, he's in his fifties. Um, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment Um, never been sexually abused Uh, and he writes uh, although for some reason then he qualifies underneath here um, I guess because maybe there's no other place to put it Uh, when I was 16 and my brother was 14 he asked if he could suck my cock knowing it was wrong probably made it more enticing to me I let him, and he was really excited about it. It did feel wonderful. There was no orgasm except later by myself. This continued for a while, and I even sucked him a couple of times, again, with no orgasm. It was great while it lasted, but I felt guilty and knew it had to stop. It stopped as quickly as it began, and it's never been mentioned again. Um, And then, uh, let's see darkest thoughts. Meeting couples who would want me in a threesome is my current fantasy and really no one uh, I know. Uh, darkest secrets. I'm a porn addict. It destroyed my 25-year marriage. I believed the things I saw in porn and read in magazines. Um, I believed the things I saw and read. I wanted to share my wife. I wanted threesomes and group sex. The fantasies are great, but the reality destroyed my marriage. I had great a great sex life and my wife was great for some time. We had anal sex a couple of times and she orgasmed from it, but a friend told her that men who like anal are most likely gay. I enjoyed the idea of having oral with a man but never anal. Uh, As our sex dwindled, I went to two men for blowjobs, fueled by my reading of stories about it. They were very unfulfilling. I went to a female prostitute for sex once. Again, it was horrible. What a fool I was. It's been five years since we divorced and I've been alone since. I'm spending this time thinking about what I did and learning about how to not make these mistakes again. I miss being in a loving relationship, but I don't feel like I deserve it after this mess I made. Um, and he says, is uh, was there, there was something else I want to... What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for love and a partner to share fantasies with who will not judge me. I wish to be a better communicator and to be more understanding. I wish I could meet a woman like me. Um, How do you feel after writing this stuff down? It's odd what I've been through, and I feel kind of like an oddball. Does that make sense? Uh, Do people feel as bad as I do? Is there a happy future for us with sexual fulfillment, happy, etc.? You know, my first thought reading that... And then wanting to give you a hug is to encourage you to deal with the sex addiction with the porn addiction I don't think there's going to be progress anywhere um until you deal with whatever addiction it is that you're going through because that's usually uh whatever is underneath that addiction is is there's usually some type of trauma or some buried something um not always but it can be really fruitful to to start there um That would be, that's my thought. And this one is from a guy who calls himself uh, Wunderkind or Wunderkind. I took two years of German in college. It's paying off. (laughs) 30 years later, uh, he is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And um, his darkest secret um, is, I'm sorry, his his uh, sexual fantasy wanting to perform fellatio on a dog uh, a large dog or a horse the idea of getting them off turns me on more than anything it makes me feel like an outcast and a sexual deviant um a threesome with myself a woman and a dog a threesome with two women having a one night stand where the woman approaches me first because she's attracted to me um being a porn star and having people admire my body and sexual prowess having a bigger penis and women being impressed and turned on when they see it. Uh, Well, welcome to the club. I'm very tall and my penis is not proportional to my body and I'm embarrassed to be seen naked. I think this is probably common, but it doesn't make it suck any less. Um, And he also uh, writes that he... Let's see. I think men who have sex with dogs and animals are disgusting, revolting human beings, and I absolutely see it as abuse. But the idea of women doing sexual acts with dogs or me performing fellatio is a turn-on for me. I watch this stuff online all the time. I've beat myself up and burned a scar into my arm for having these thoughts over the years, but eventually have come to accept them despite the fact that I know any friends, family, or general public would think I'm a vile human being who should be locked away. Um, I still have the fantasies, but I would never act on them uh, with anyone's pets and would never ever force an animal to do anything it didn't want um yeah and oh i you know what I'd wanted to read this one first because I asked, how do you feel after writing these things down and you write it's nice to have them down on paper or internet paper, but I still feel incredibly stressed and lonely and I wanted, oh, and one other thing I wanted to share about his thing is, uh, have you shared this with others? And he writes, I shared my uh, zoo sexual fantasies with my girlfriend and she accepted and did not shame me for them. But she has studied psychology immensely and she's a very open, understanding person. Other people wouldn't be so understanding. Thank you for sharing that. And that's fantastic that you, uh, you found somebody who sees you and accepts you. Um, and gets that you're, you're not hurting anybody. These are just thoughts in your head. Um, and then this one I wanted to read because um, she also has, well, she feels silly uh, admitting this. And her name is, uh, she calls herself so mathematical and she's in her 20s and she's gay. And uh, she, she says, I love imagining myself getting off women while they are doing important tasks like going on interviews or playing a classical piano concert. The idea of them wanting me so badly that their orgasm ends up ruining their professional demeanor gets me off every single time. I always feel silly admitting this. Thank you for sharing that. Thank all three of you for uh, sharing that. I just find this survey so endlessly, endlessly uh, fascinating. Um, This is an email that I got from, let's see, how does she want to be referred to? Yes, she wants to be referred to as Vicki. And she writes, I know you're not a therapist, but I want your opinion. A few months ago, my husband and I let someone stay with us to help her out. She's the sister of my husband's best friend. She lost custody of her two kids to an abusive ex. She had no job or place to live. She was staying at the shelter for abused women. It turned into a huge mistake to let her stay with us. A real nightmare. To make a long story short, I kicked her out after she blew up at me in front of my kids. I have MS. I'm working through my own shit. I couldn't deal with hers, too. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She was a liar, a thief, and a drug addict, all of which I didn't discover until after I kicked her out. After listening to your podcast with Matt Oswalt when you were explaining to him what bipolar disorder is, I realized that's probably what's wrong with her. The problem is, I think I should feel some kind of understanding for her, but instead I just feel pissed, pissed about everything, but mostly that she stole toys from my daughter. I guess I feel empathy for her, but I'm still pissed. How do I let it go? Am I supposed to just give her a pass mentally because she's bipolar? Any comments you have are much appreciated. And I wrote her back and I said, Vicki, I think it's normal to feel both. Your feelings are absolutely valid. And don't try to wish the anger away. Feel it. Same with compassion. Something I do sometimes when I can't let go of anger at someone is once a day for a week or so I'll meditate or pray for good things for them for about 30 seconds and my anger eventually subsides. It feels phony at first but eventually I do feel compassion for them. Uh, and I would resist any temptation to contact, fix, or confront her. She's unsafe until she gets help, which is not your responsibility. And you did the right thing in protecting yourself and your kids when she crossed those boundaries. You should be proud of yourself. Some people have made the mistake of taking a person like that on as their project under the mistaken belief that they could change them and that not trying means they're a bad person. And that illusion is every much of a sickness as the person who is uh, addicted and stealing this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, doll and um, she writes most of my friends and family know that I've been suffering from panic attacks since I was in, in middle school what none of them know is that I had my very first panic attack while masturbating yes I worked myself up so much that my brain freaked the fuck out Um, this is a happy moment. And this is from, uh, Vicky who, uh, just shared us about, uh, kicking that, uh, the woman out. And, uh, Her happy moment, she writes, I was diagnosed with MS about four years ago. I'm slowly getting worse. Mobility is an issue for me. I had a really happy moment yesterday. I took my 12-year-old daughter and five-year-old son to Playland, and we had dinner. My husband wasn't with us. In fact, no other adult was with us. This was huge for me. I was so happy to just be in the moment, enjoying watching my kids playing and giving my wonderful supportive husband some me time. I'm crying now as I write this, but they're happy tears. Also, the week before, when my five year old was with his grandma um I picked up my daughter from school. Uh, we had dinner and went shopping. It was the first time in several months I ventured out alone. It felt great to have that time alone with her and uh suggestions for the show she would like uh she says I struggle with anger and depression due to the m um, s and she would like to have a hear a guest and I do I'm slated to record a um a comedian actually who who has m s and um hopefully that'll be a, a a fruitful recording that's right i use the word fruitful um, and this is another happy moment from from Vicky, that really touched me and she writes, uh, my grandma on my mom's side died when I was 16. I'm 44 now. I was feeling cold so I put on this pink sweater of grandma's that I had kept. Um, she always wore it so I couldn't part with it. Shortly after putting it on, I realized I feel like she's hugging me. I felt so comforted like I could cry from happiness. A flood of wonderful memories of time spent with her came to me. Thank you for those, Vicky." Um, this is an awful some moment filled out by um, Dahl, and she writes quick backstory I've a strained relationship with my maternal family my mom was very abusive to me when I was younger and her emotional abuse escalated when I got into high school she told the rest of her family that I was violent and a runaway and that I wasn't to be trusted while things have gotten a lot better between me and my mom and hence most of my maternal family there's still some tension One night, my cousin was throwing a party and I decided to at least come back and say hello. I was already stressed from work and recovering from a two-day hangover when my other cousin pulled me aside where no one could hear us to talk to me about my relationship with my mom. It got emotional very fast, with him telling me I should not talk badly about his favorite aunt and me trying to explain that his favorite aunt was my mom and I had a more complicated relationship with her than anyone realized. I started sobbing while everyone watched. My cousin then said, you know, your problem is you're not confident about yourself and you should be. You're a beautiful girl and believe me, if we weren't related, I would totally fuck you. I was so shocked, I stopped crying immediately and actually burst out laughing. That might go in the awful Hall of Fame. That is definitely a contender. And then finally, uh, we have a happy moment from Riley. And he writes, Last year I searched for my biological family and found them shortly after thanks to Facebook. It was, wow, so there is something good <laughs> to Facebook. Uh, It was 28 years in the making when I got a message from my mom. It was a moment full of emotions, happiness, sadness, shock, and excitement in one second. We met later that month and I finally felt like I fit in with people. I finally met my blood family after years of uncertainty. It was thrilling. The first hug I got from my mom was so full of love, it was tough to let go of that moment. Then I met my siblings and it was crazy how much we had in common. That was one of the most important days in my adult life. Well, thank you for that, Riley. And thank you guys for uh, for being a part of the show. And uh, thanks to uh, Peace Amati. And um, I hope if you listened, I hope if you're still hanging on at 97 minutes in, that, uh, that you know that you're not alone and that there's hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and try something different. And uh, maybe even ask for help. And... Um, yeah. Thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful fucked up in some weird ways. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways.